All right, before we dive into our passage, let's pray. Let's ask God to bless this time. Father, we come as your people this morning, as your children, Lord, and we ask for mercy from you. God, we ask you to be faithful to your word, faithful to your promise. God, many times, Lord, you have, you have met with us over your word. You are faithful, God. And we ask you to draw near to us as a family this morning and speak to us, Lord. Instruct us with words from your mouth, Lord. God, turn our face to the heavens and remind us of what you have done for us in Jesus. Encourage us this morning in the gospel. Lord, bless the teaching of your word. God, help me to teach this passage in the strength that you supply. And help us as a local church to hear this teaching in the strength that you supply. So you get all the glory, Lord. And God, we pray that you would visit your word with power today. Make it effective in our life. Don't let it fall to the ground, Lord. Make it effective by the power of your Holy Spirit. God, we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, First John chapter 4. And we're going to start off, we're going to read our passage together. So if you have your Bibles, I want everybody that has one, I want us to get our eyes on these words. These are the words of the living God without error. And we get to read them. We get to gather around them, sinful people, and we get to hear God personally address us from His Word. So here's our text. Verse 13. 1 John chapter 4, verse 13. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. So, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is his commandment that we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So this is God's word to us as a local church this morning. Before we start unpacking that passage, I want to frame up a real high backdrop that hangs over our passage today and the entire book of 1 John. Okay? We know from God's Word that the Lord Jesus, prior to Him ascending into heaven, He gave His church a mission. He gave His people an enduring mission. It goes through every generation of His church. Listen to it in Matthew 28. 
verse 18. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations from that point forward. The church of Jesus has been faithfully plundering the gates of hell by announcing the gospel of Jesus, by sowing the seed of his word among the nations. That's the backdrop. Now, Jesus told us that the true gospel is not going to be the only seed that's scattered among the nations. Listen to this in Matthew 13. Verse 24, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat. And then the enemy went away. We are to expect this as the church in every generation. That while the true church and the people of God are getting that gospel to the ends of the earth... Satan is busy sowing false gospel seeds among the nations. And Jesus tells us of the distinction between a true and a counterfeit Christian with the words wheat and the words weed. We are to expect this to happen. Jesus told us that they will be side by side until this final harvest where they will be separated from one another. And in our passage today, that final harvest is called the day of judgment. The day of judgment. And so, brothers and sisters, I'm reminding you, as, as we go into this passage, this is why we preach the gospel. Because scriptures handle this day crystal clear. God has announced to us that there is a day coming, an end time harvest and John calls it, in this passage, the day of judgment. And I want to remind us on the front end of the seriousness that's involved with this coming day. There is not a person in this room, myself included, that takes the final judgment too serious. Is that even a possibility for me to look at, or anybody in this room to look at someone else and say, you know what? That final judgment thing, that end time eternal harvest... You're just taking that a little too serious. Is that not an impossibility, right? We lean towards the other side of that, of taking it too lightly, of not thinking about it enough. And so I want to remind us of what Scripture says about this coming harvest and this day of judgment. Listen to Malachi chapter 4, verse 1. For behold... The day is coming burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. That day is coming. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave Neither root nor branch. There's a day coming burning like an oven. And this is why we preach the gospel. This is why we sow seeds among the nations. This is why we preach it 
every week in this church because we believe that and we want to believe it more. We want to be more and more conscious of this day that's coming burning like an oven and we want to prepare people for that day with the gospel of Jesus. But Jesus told us that there will be weeds among the wheat. As they approach this final day, this day that's burning like an oven, some are going to go to that final day with confidence. But the only problem is, some are going to go to that final day with false confidence. They're going whistling to the final judgment because they think they are safe when in fact they are not safe. They are not safe. And we as the people of God want to learn how to love people like that. How do we love? How do we respond to somebody that is heading towards the day that is burning like an oven? And they think they are safe when in fact they are the opposite of safe. How can we seek to awaken false converts? How can we be trained by the Holy Spirit faithful to sow not only the gospel message, but also the truth of biblical conversion among the nations. How can we love these people? You have faces and names in your mind right now. Surely you do. We're talking about people that we love. How can we love them? Quick show of hands before we go further. If you are in this room and you are in Christ. Okay. But there was a time in your life where you thought you were in Christ and you were not in Christ. Raise your hand. I would say that 70% of the room that just did that. So you think about that. How can we love people who are just like you? Just like you. Heading towards that day burning like an oven. But unprepared for that day. Full of false confidence. How can we love them? And John tells us how we can. In fact, he lays out this entire letter. And he is holding up the standard of biblical conversion. Biblical conversion. Over and over again, he is reminding us that true conversion to Christ is produced by what you believe and confirmed by how you live. I'll say that again. John tells us over and over again that true conversion to the Lord Jesus is produced by what you believe and then it's confirmed by how you live. John is not teaching salvation by works of love in this letter. He's not. That's a false gospel. He's not teaching that. He, neither is John blurring the lines between justification and sanctification. He's not doing that. Okay? That would, that, that would, be, um, that would be hypocrisy. That would be a false gospel. He's not doing that. So what is he doing? He's not undermining confidence. He's showing us what true conversion to Jesus looks like. And he relentlessly holds up this standard all throughout this letter. And you, if you've been sitting with us, you know this. He comes back to this over and over and over again. This is what it looks like when the Lord Jesus saves a man or saves a woman. It is discernible. Okay? We sang that a minute ago. Uh... Our God is not dead. He's alive. He's alive. Christ is risen. 
from the dead. This is the same thing that he's doing. Is when the Lord Jesus of scripture comes and dwells in a human being. When a man or in a woman. It makes a difference because he is alive. He is alive. This is biblical conversion. And so we need to learn how to use this book well. On ourselves. To test ourselves. And then to turn around and give this nominal Christian culture a gift of love. Gift of love. We want to extend the truth about true conversion into this culture. What you believe about Jesus produces the new birth. And then how you follow Jesus confirms the new birth. That's what we want to be used by God to relentlessly get out into this nominal culture. So I want you to think about this. If I were to ask, it's really important that you get that distinction down of what produces it and what confirms it. And we're going to talk about this morning of some different layers of assurance. Uh, there's a foundational layer and a confirming layer of assurance, and we're going to dig into that. But before we go, I just want to give you this example. Okay? If I were to ask you, you know, we're studying through 1 John as a local church. You heard these tests come up over and over again. And I were to, if I were to ask you, are, how do you know that you are saved? I, I want everybody in here to know that it would be entirely inappropriate for your gut reflex and the first thing that you reach for, how do I know I'm saved? Because look at my life. If that's your gut reflex and your instant impulse, Look at me. Look how awesome I am. Okay? That would be a dangerous, dangerous vital sign into where your hope is. Okay? It could be a vital sign that your hope is in your own works and your, to, to gain a right standing before God. So it's really important that you learn how to use these tests rightly. Okay? What's the gut reflex to anybody that's asked a question in this room? How do you know that you're saved? And the response is... Because I believe the gospel of the grace of God, I believe it. With everything in me, I believe the gospel. And I know I'm saved because I believe the gospel. That's the foundation. That's the gut reaction. That's what we cling to. That's what we sink our feet in, in like concrete. The gospel. We know that we are saved because we believe the gospel. And then if I were to turn to you in that same conversation and say, yeah, but how do you know you really believe? How do you know you really believe? You say you believe. How do you know you really believe that gospel? Then it is entirely appropriate for you to present evidence that proves that faith to be genuine. That's, that's how we have to understand this. It, it is really important that you get it in that order. One is a foundation and one is a confirmation. We need evidence to have certainty. Okay? And you're going to see that's how our passage starts off in verse 13. You need evidence. And you might be saying, for what? What do I need evidence for? Listen to verse 13. Okay? We need to know whether or not God the Holy Spirit lives in us. Where's your evidence that God the Holy Spirit lives in you? You believe the gospel. God the Spirit comes to live in you. Where's your evidence? Listen to verse 13. By this we know that we abide in Him 
and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. He has given us of His Spirit. God's, God abides in every Christian by His Holy Spirit, without exception. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit living and dwelling inside of them. God abides in us by His Spirit, or verse, uh, because of His Spirit. Verse Chapter 3, verse 24 says, by the, He dwells in us by the Spirit. That's how He abides in us. It's through the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. By means of the Spirit, the Father dwells in us and the Son dwells in us. This is without exception in every Christian. We have the Holy Spirit. And the question is still, how do we know that? How do we know that? And in this verse, John gives us some criteria to know how can you really know with certainty that that has happened to you or that, that it has not. And he says, by this we know. By this we know. And I looked into that phrase in verse 13 for a long time. For a long time. Seeking the Lord. Which, how does this connect? What is he pointing us to? And after studying through this for a long time, I landed that, that that phrase, by this, in verse 13, points you back to verse 12, specifically the acts of love toward one another. In verse 12. So I'm going to paraphrase these verses for you to help you get this in your mind, okay? Verse 12 and 13. If we love one another... By that, we know that God is in us. That's how you know that God the Holy Spirit lives in you. Because there are manifestations and evidences of His love being produced out through your life. Okay? I see this all over the book of 1 John. Okay? This is nothing specific about this verse. That's why I lean heavy towards reading the passage like that. That, God, that John, under the influence, inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us that our life can confirm our salvation. It can confirm authentic conversion. You see that? He is taking a gaze towards his works of love to draw something out of taking that gaze. And so you need to know that. Okay? Looking at your life. In a, in a healthy way, in an appropriate way, and drawing a conclusion is not legalism. That is not legalism to do that. It can be if you do it wrong, but it is, by definition, it is not legalistic and it, and it is not sinfully judging someone. You think about that, about the gut impulse of a soft Christian culture is that when we begin to hold that torch out, into this nominal culture. Are you judging me? Are you, are you judging me? Are you telling me that I'm not in Christ. Because you're looking at something that I'm doing. Are you judging? You go get that uh, log out of your own eye. Don't judge me. You see, you see this. It's not that. This is not sinful judging to do this. It's not legalism. It's biblical love. It's a biblical love to wake somebody up to true conversion. I want you to see how many times that this same thing is said in the entire letter of 1 John. Here we go. 1 John chapter 2 verse 3. Listen close. By this we know that we have come to know Him. If we keep His 
commandments. 1 John chapter 2, verse 5. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. 1 John chapter 3, verse 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit who he has given us. I want you to see that language, that trajectory. And I want to remind you that God the Holy Spirit had every opportunity to say, By this we know we are Christians because we pray the prayer. Because I prayed the prayer when I was 16. By this I know I'm a Christian. Because I was baptized when I was 20. Could have said all those things. But he is drawing forward the character of someone's life. The fruit of someone's life. And he is making a connection that that fruit confirms true conversion. That is not legalism. That is truth. Biblical conversion will never be any different than that. You will be assaulted by a culture that wants to make... Faith in Jesus, just saying something and nothing in your life lining up, okay? It will never be like that because biblical faith in Jesus brings the living God to reside within us and he always makes himself known in these fruits, in these fruits. So here, here's where our passage is going. That test and that gaze towards ourself and our works is specifically being applied to our love for other Christians. Your love for other Christians confirms that God has really done something in your life. And here's how this works. Okay? You can know on the surface level that it's true. That Christians will love one another. But our, our passage and, and really these few paragraphs tell us why it's true. Okay? Twice in these two paragraphs. Verse 8 and verse 16. God is called... He's named like this. God is love. God is love. And then about ten times in these two paragraphs, you have language that God is in us. He abides in us. So put those things together. This passage is teaching that the God who is love lives in every Christian. So real easy to draw the, the, the next implication. Therefore... If the God who is love lives in every Christian, then every Christian will manifest that love towards other Christians. This is what he's laying out. Okay? This is what he's laying out. Verse 12 calls that whole process of God, the God who is love dwelling in us and producing love through us. Verse 12 calls that whole process love being perfected in us. And I want you to hold that phrase in your mind. We're going to come back to that in a minute. I want to know some more about that. Love being perfected in me. His love being perfected in me. So just hold it off to the side. We're going to come back to that. Okay. So, so far, he has us looking at ourselves to know that something has happened to us. Okay. And then I want, to, I want you to see his very next move in this passage 
is he tells us to stop looking at ourselves, and he turns our gaze towards the Lord Jesus and his work in our place. So beginning in verse 14, you see a shift. And this, we've talked about this a lot at Grace Community Church, that you have both of these gazes. You gaze inward and you gaze Christward. And both of these gazes are needed to produce biblical assurance. But it's really important that you get these in the right order and you get them in the right balance. Okay? So as we are staring at our deeds of love and drawing some kind of comfort, he says, stop looking at that. And then he shoves the work of the Lord Jesus and he says, look at this. Look at this. And here's the framework I want us to see. The Christward gaze is the foundation of our assurance. And the inward gaze is the confirmation of our assurance. Robert Murray McChain, he gives us some, some really good advice of how to, how to keep these in the appropriate balance. He says, for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Jesus Christ. And so I want to remind you of that. That's the concrete that we're standing in. We know we're saved because of that. He did that for me. I believe that gospel. I trust that Christ. Ten of those to one gaze within. To one gaze inward. Okay? I amen that. And so here's what he's doing. And I love how John does this. In the middle of these tests. And you've seen this the past several weeks. It's like he laces this, this little gospel thread in the middle of these tests. And he reminds us of who the Lord Jesus is in almost every paragraph. It's like in the middle of us examining ourselves, he's saying, don't forget about Jesus. Don't forget about Christ. Come in the flesh. So you see that scattered, scattered throughout this letter. But here we have one of the most extended um, unpacking of the gospel, verse 14, 15, and 16, that shows up in the, in the entire letter. So he wants to st us to sit in this for a minute. He wants to remind us of Jesus and his work. Listen to verse 14. He says, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. So this is... This is beginning the, the gospel in many format. Jesus was sent by the Father to be the Savior of the world. And before we unpack that, I want us to camp out on the word we in verse 14. We see, we testify. Okay? That's another example of what we're calling an apostolic we in this letter. It happened in chapter 1 verse 3. It happened earlier in chapter 4, verse 6. And when he says, we see and we testify, he's not talking about we, Grace Community Church. He's talking about the apostles of the Lord Jesus. And so, you're a believer in Christ. You're covered in the righteousness of Christ. And so are the apostles. They believe in the Lord Jesus and they are covered in the righteousness of Christ. But here's a difference between you and them. You did not see Jesus. You have never seen Jesus. You have never seen the Lord Jesus. So we, we just humble ourselves. It's true. None of us have seen Jesus. None of us have seen Jesus. They saw him. 
They saw the Lord Jesus and they bore witness to what they saw. This is the apostolic testimony, eyewitness testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ and his work. So you think about you think about where we find ourselves. You have never seen Jesus, but draw an implication from that. How in the world are you entrusting your eternal soul to a Christ that you have never laid your eyes on? How are you doing that? How are you staking everything on a Christ that you have never seen? You've never seen him. What's the answer to this question? God breathed out a holy book, a collection of books called the New Testament. They are his words without error. God speaks every time we read these books. And these books are recorded by the apostles of Jesus. They saw Jesus. We did not. And we experience their authoritative eyewitness testimony as we read the four Gospels and the book of Acts and these New Testament letters. These are the apostolic documents that tell us who the real Jesus is. So I want you to know this. We stake our eternity and we go, we go through the testimony of the apostles to know anything about Jesus. Do you know that? That's how central God's word is in your life. One, two, three. You answer the question. Name one thing you know about the Lord Jesus that you didn't read in scripture. One, two, three, go. And the crickets start going. There is nothing that we know about him apart from what we read in scripture. We did not see him. They did. But praise the living God. When they saw him, they testified toward to what they saw. They testified to us. This is the doctrine of the apostles. They saw him. We did not. And when we say they saw him, we mean something different than, than they saw him physically. Okay? We don't mean less than that. They saw him physically and bodily. But we, we mean something more than that. They actually saw Jesus for who he really was. There are people who saw him in his physical body that didn't see him for who he really was. The apostles saw him for who he really was. In John chapter 1 verse 14, the same Greek word here is used. And it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then catch this. They said, and we have seen his glory. They saw the glory of Jesus Christ. And they open their mouth and they bear witness to the glory of Christ down through the ages of church history through the word of God. Through the word of God. They saw him and then they opened their mouth and announced what they saw. So let's sit in this for a minute. They saw his glory in his teaching. They saw the Lord Jesus teach. And here's what they saw. They saw an uneducated man. No formal Religious training. Nothing. And then they saw him stand over the word of God and rebuke the highest teachers of scripture in Israel. This uneducated carpenter from Nazareth. They heard him open his mouth and handle God's word with what they call authority. Never heard anything like it. 
in their life that the Creator Himself is now handling His self-revelation. And they said things like this, no one ever spoke like this man. They heard Him teach and they saw His glory in the things that He announced and preached Himself. They saw His glory in His miracles. You put yourself in their shoes. They, 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 this happens all over the Gospels. Saw Jesus' glory in His miracles. And so, just a normal day with the Lord Jesus, right? They're, they're in the boat on the Sea of Galilee. And, and they're in the boat. Jesus said, hey, let's go to the other side. And these men see the Son of Man, Jesus of Nazareth, lay down in that boat. And He dozes off and He's going to sleep. And they have no category for this man because a millisecond later, this megastorm fires up on the Sea of Galilee. And they see that same sleeping Christ. They see Him stand up as the Son of God and address the megastorm with the Word. And He shut it down with the Word from His mouth. They saw creation respond to the words that were coming out of His lips. They saw His glory and His miracles. They, they were there when he, were, when he raised the widow's son at, from name. They were there when, when He said, Lazarus, come forth. And He's overpowering death just by speaking. And they saw His glory. They saw the glory of Christ in His miracles and His teaching. They saw the glory of Christ in His resurrection. These are the men that saw Him in His, in his moment of weakness. They were there as, as the Son of God is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And He is in agony to the point where Luke's Gospel tells us that He is sweating drops of blood. They saw Him in weakness. They saw Him in weakness on the cross. They, they were there. They were watching when the darkness falls on Golgotha and God the Father forsakes Jesus. And he's forsaken of God. And they saw him in those moments. But, but here, here's the Lord Jesus side by side in their minds. Three days later they saw Christ resurrected from the dead. The, ones, the, the same Jesus that bled drops of blood and was forsaken of God and died on that bloody cross. They saw him alive. Not a mystical thing. Jesus sat down and ate fish with them. Can you imagine that experience? Not just Him coming and addressing you, but Him saying, sit down and let's eat some food. And everything in you is saying, I just saw you dead and you're eating fish. He is the resurrected Lord. They saw His glory. And they saw enough of His glory that every, almost every one of them died a martyr. You think about the last thing that they saw about the Lord Jesus in the book of Acts uh, chapter 1. They saw that man. That they had walked around with and lived with. They saw a man, Jesus. They saw him ascend into heaven on the clouds. Anybody seen anything like that this week? Saw him ascend in the clouds. And then they heard this. Yeah, the, the same way you just saw him go, he's coming back again. They saw his glory. They saw Jesus for who he really was. But not, and, and they bear witness to it. They tell us something about Jesus. This is, this, is, this is their role in the church. And when we say that they tell us or testify of Jesus, it's not like they're just giving us the information to sort out ourselves. Okay? 
And you might read a biography about somebody and it's all statistics and you form your own opinion about, about that person after you take in all the data. Their witness about Jesus isn't like that. They don't just give you biographical facts about Christ. They actually interpret the Lord Jesus for you and they present to us who Jesus is and why He really came. Look at what He says in verse 14. He's not the carpenter from Nazareth. He didn't come to do that. He didn't come to give us some really good teaching. They said that He came to be the Savior of the world. You can't twist and distort who Jesus is. He's not just a good teacher and He's not just our example. He is the Savior of the world. The apostles tell us why He's here. The Father sent Him to be the Savior of the world. The world. He didn't come to give us self-help. He didn't come to be an encourager to us. I heard this example one time, and I think it's really, really good for us to drive in. And they compared the, the coming of Christ to a firefighter that's standing outside of a burning building. And someone is on the inside, and they're burning alive. And you imagine, if your gospel is this, that Jesus is such a good man, and He shows us how to live. If that's your gospel, then you got this firefighter ready to do some work, standing on the outside of that burning building. And he screams to the inside, okay, here's what you do. Come out of that house in, in 30 seconds. And the problem is the person on the inside of the house is passed out unconscious, can't hear anything you said. It's no good news. There's, there's no help. And neither is it like that firefighter jumping in the window and said, okay. Follow me. I'll get you out of here. And the guy runs out of the house, straight out of the front door, and he gets in the front yard, and he's looking around. He's saying, where'd you go? The guy's still on the inside. He's unconscious. Okay? Jesus didn't come to encourage you, to give you self-help, to, to pump you up, to, to follow God. Jesus did not come to help you help yourself. He is the Savior. He came to rescue us. He's the one who went inside the burning building, snatched us up, and takes us out of there. He came to do what we could not do for ourselves. He is the Savior of the world. He came to rescue us. When He was born, Matthew chapter 1, they said, Call His name Jesus, because He will save His people from their sins. That's what He's doing. He has been sent by the Father on a rescue mission to save us from our sins. And He is the only one in all the universe that is able to accomplish this work. He is the one and the only Savior. Praise the Lord for the Father sending Jesus to be the Savior of the world. He saves us from our sins. And think about how does He do that? He's here. That's His mission how does He do it? I'll give you three ways. Penalty of sin, power of sin, presence of sin. He saves us comprehensively from sin. So here, here's who He is. Here is Jesus the Savior. He is the only Savior. And He saves us from the penalty of sin. That's the death sentence that we deserve from God, the righteous judge. That the wages that we have earned in His courtroom is eternal punishment. Wrath forever. The, 
the deepest of torments, the highest of punishment for our rebellion against God. But He came as the Savior to deliver us from the penalty of sin. How did He do it? He did it by living a life of perfect righteousness. That means that the Lord Jesus came and He's the God-man living in His creation. And He lived the life that we should have lived. And then He gives that perfect life up as a spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He gives His perfect life up as, a, as an atonement sacrifice for sin on the cross. This is, there's no way to be forgiven of your sins and to have this guilt removed, the guilt of sin, other than a bloody, dead Christ dying in your place. New Testament tells us this, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. There is no such thing in all of history of God forgiving anybody for being sorry that they sinned. God, the righteous judge, forgives on the basis of blood shed in our place. Justice falls on the Lamb of God instead of us. And He is the only Savior. There's no one else who can take the penalty for us. He's the Savior. He saves us from the power of sin. Not just from the penalty, but from the power of sin. Romans chapter 6 says that that same Christ that came and died in our place on His cross lives in us. We're united to Him in the likeness of His resurrection. He's the mighty one that dwells in us. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews tells us that that same Jesus that died for us on His cross is our great high priest that always lives to make intercession for us. So what do you get? What do you get when you put these together? That Jesus lives in us and Jesus prays for us. You get the power of sin broken, snapped in half for the believer. We are no longer under the dominion of sin because He, he is the Savior. And He also saves us from the presence of sin forever. Comprehensive salvation. You say, what do you mean? With His glorious return... He is going to banish all ungodliness. And He is going to raise us from the grave with an incorruptible body. Never to sin again. Saved to sin no more. Ever. No sin nature. Because of the Savior. Call His name Jesus. He's going to save His people from their sins. Listen to Philippians chapter 3 verse 20. Our citizenship... Is in heaven. And from it we await a savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. Who will transform our lowly body. To be like his glorious body. By the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Do you know that? Brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you know that there's a power move coming. At the end of this age. The Lord Jesus is going to exercise unrivaled, unparalleled power and authority in our life. And we will be saved to sin no more. We will worship the Lord Jesus throughout all eternity with no sin. With no sin. He is the Savior. That's why we sing, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. 
There's no news like this in all of God's creation. And there is no Savior besides Jesus. And it's not like He's going to do that work that we just talked about to a few people. They announce Him as the Savior of the world. This thing is going global. There will be myriads of myriads that no man can number that have been ransomed by the blood of the Lamb. He will cover the earth with His salvation. He is the Savior of the world. And He will receive an all-nations church, an all-nations bride. His scale, the scale of His salvation is global. He's the Savior of the world. Now, that's the, that's the gospel that, that the apostles announced. This is the Lord Jesus, and, and this is what He came to do. And then you know this, anyone who shared that, that gospel in this world, you know that everybody doesn't respond to that gospel the same. There are different ways to hear and respond to this gospel, so let's talk about a few. Some will hear that message that we just rolled through, that, that yes, He is the carpenter of Nazareth, but He's the God-man, the glorious Christ, the Lord Jesus. And they will hear you go through that, that, that gospel, that announcement, and, and they will think that you are off your rocker. They will think you're stupid. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says that the, this gospel that we just rolled through, through is folly to this type of person. They hear it and it's silliness to them. The message that has the power to raise the dead, the message that... That reveals the righteousness of God. The message that puts the glory of Jesus on display. They say, silliness. Silliness. Nonsense. At best, they might say that the Lord Jesus was a real man from Nazareth. And maybe he taught some good religious things. But this idea of this supernatural Christ. Nonsense. Foolishness. Folly. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had understood the gospel, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. They see a man dying a martyr's death on the cross. They don't see the Lord of glory paying the just penalty for sin. The Lamb of God. Taken away the sins of the world. Their minds and their eyes are blinded to the gospel. And their hearts are hardened to the gospel. This is an unbeliever. And just to throw a third category in there. Others respond favorably to the message of the gospel. In the sense that they will affirm factual truths about Jesus. The Bible says Jesus is the God man. I believe it. Bible says this is how you get saved. I believe it. But the problem is that some are going to respond and they're going to believe that like they believe the right answers on a doctrine exam. It never hits their life. It's an intellectual only exercise. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 4 has a description of this type of person. I want you to hear it. In their case... The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, 
who is the image of God. This verse has meant a lot to me. It's helped me in so many ways of what happened to me as a false convert. For years, I could tell you several things about the gospel. I knew that the Bible says that God was righteous and that God would punish sinners. I knew that the Bible taught that, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I knew that God's answer to this problem was Jesus. And Jesus came and he lived a perfect life and he died on the cross in our place offering us salvation. Not by works that we could do, but through faith receiving his righteousness as a gift. I knew all of those. You know what the problem was? I could give a rip about it. I knew gospel facts. That verse says that I was blinded not to facts, but to glory. I heard the message of the gospel and it had no beauty, no power, no authority. Nothing in me was gripped when I heard about the Lord Jesus dying in my place. No grief over sin. Why? Because I can't see his glory. I'm trying to understand him like a doctrine exam and facts on a piece of paper. And this is common in our culture. Blind to glory. Do not see beauty in Christ. And then we have the, the third group. And these are those who truly receive the gospel. Listen to verse 15 and 16. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. And he in God. So that we so we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. These are the confessors. Okay? And that word confess is in the aorist tense. And what that means is it draws us into this vivid moment. A vivid moment in our past where we stood publicly. And came into agreement, confessed that what the apostles said about Jesus is true. We did this once for all. A decisive moment of coming into agreement with what the Bible says about Jesus. And it's not an intellectual only thing. We hear the gospel proclaimed to us and everything in us says amen. I love that Christ. I believe in that Christ. I see His glory. I would die for that Christ. I confess Him. I agree. He's the Savior of the world. I agree. I confess it. I don't deny it. I stake my life on it. A single decisive moment where we put our trust in the Lord Jesus. And He is the Christ of glory. Not facts on a piece of paper. The glorious Christ. Look at verse 16. I want you to see this. Verse 16 tells us that a true receiving of the gospel is way past understanding intellectual facts. Saving faith in verse 16 is described as you hearing the gospel and you interpreting it and understanding it as an act of love from God towards you personally. Towards you personally. We have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Is that what you see when you hear the gospel announced? 
Are you saying, yep, factual, yep, doctrine, yep, that's right. Or do you hear it a step past that, Lord Jesus, you loved me and died in my place. Do you hear it as an act of unthinkable mercy from God towards you, the rebellious sinner? When you hear the gospel of Jesus announced, do you see it as an act of love? God is loving me in Christ. This is saving faith. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. But Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith. In the son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. For me. Yes Jesus died for the church. Yes Jesus died for the elect. But Jesus died for me. He's died on his cross and he's paying my penalty. He is my savior. Personal trust. Personal trust. Verse 15 tells us that if this is your response to the gospel, what does that mean? It means that God lives in you. So you have two strands of evidence. Wait a second. I thought we know that God lives in us because we love one another. And he says that. And then he says here that we, we know that God lives in us when we believe the gospel. That's the two strands of evidence coming together. One is the foundation and one is the confirmation. And I want us to see that this indwelling God that comes to live in us. So we'll transition. I want us to see that he's in us for a reason. He is committed to. To doing something in us. On our insides. In our inner man. Look at verse 12. If we love one another. God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. So. I want us to go. Slow. Through a few things to draw from that. Because we're, we're tying in some major things in this letter. With, with what we're talking about right now. God is in us and he's committed to doing something very specific in us. This is the indwelling God. So three implications because of regeneration. Because of regeneration, God's love lives in every believer. And it's important that you understand that God doesn't just command us to love. He actually places his love inside of us. So that's one of the things it means when we celebrate God lives in me. Listen to John chapter 17 verse 26. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The same love that the father loved the son lives in the believer. This is earth shaking. This is staggering. Okay? This is one of the gospel riches that you can be saved five years and never know. Oh, I never knew that. God's love, not just an imitation of his love. God's love lives in every Christian in every Christian. Implication number two, God is committed to perfecting his love in every believer. God's love lives in us and he is committed to doing something with that in every believer. Now, that's hard to understand. On the surface because of the way it's translated. What do you mean? What's imperfect about God's love is the question. How in the world could God's love be perfected? Okay. 
So it's really important that you understand that word perfect or perfected really means completed. The idea here is not that there are imperfections and perfections being added, but the idea is that that is not done yet. That that love of God is not done with its work yet. So this is the same word that's used of Jesus in, in John chapter 4 verse 34. Listen to this. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish, literally to perfect his work. That's how we want to see it. That God is in us, his love is in us, and he is determined to accomplish something with that love that is in us. Implication number three. The way this spills out in verse 12. God's in us. He's committed to doing something in us. The way that spills out is specific deeds of love from a Christian towards another Christian. That the love of God, not just love, but the love of God himself is manifested when we love one another. When we love one another. There's something more going on than just us doing right. God is doing something in us when we love one another. I want you to wake up to the beauty of that. It's one thing to see the commandment. It's another thing to come under the commandment and see how God's at work in us to empower us to love one another. This is true for every Christian. Every Christian. You could read that and you could think, well, there are Christians who have been perfected in love and Christians who have not been perfected in love. No, it's not. Every Christian, God dwells in us. Every Christian, God is committed to, to accomplishing His love, to seeing it to, to fulfillment in our life. Every single one of us, He is at work in us. He is at work in us. This is the gospel. This is one of the riches of the gospel. So putting this together, I want you to see the beauty of this. God is love. So the same love that existed in God from eternity was manifested in history in the Lord Jesus. And him dying in our place on his cross. And the Bible says that that same love that's been in God from eternity and that was manifested in the Lord Jesus, that love, same love lives in every believer. And it's shown visibly as we love one another. That is a glorious, glorious gift of grace that God is powerfully at work within us, producing his own love. In us. Again, this happens to every Christian. Every Christian. Okay? And one of the first things that we need to combat is some are going to hear that and they say, well, man, that sounds great, but I know myself. I know myself, and I don't always love my brothers. I don't always love my sisters with God's perfect love. Welcome, welcome to the club, right? There's nobody that can say that they have. And so what we're looking for. As we take a gaze towards these deeds of love, as we're looking for something real and discernible, we're not looking for perfection, flawless love that you display towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. We're, we're, we're looking for that evidence. Is there evidence that God is doing everything that we just described in verse 12? That's why there's so many verses in the New Testament that talk about love abounding, love increasing, love growing, because we don't love perfectly. But God is committed to seeing this process out in every Christian. He is perfecting and completing his love in us. And so every time the Lord helps us to do that, 
You shouldn't think, man, I'm awesome. You should think God is at work in me. And you should even take it a step further that the same love that drove Jesus Christ to his cross is pulsing out of me throughout this body, this local church. That is a beautiful thing. Ryan touched on this last week. People can't see God, but they can see that. They can see that flowing through a local church. I'll close with two effects. So there's two things that flow out of God in us committed to do what we just talked about. There's two effects of this. Of His love being perfected within us. And these are going to serve as our applications as we close this morning. There's some things that flow from that truth of God in us perfecting His love. And the first is that it casts out vertical fear. Look at verse 17. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love cast out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So here's the reminder. We started with this. There is a day coming burning like an oven. It is true. Even if you hadn't thought about it, 20 seconds in the last five years of your life, it is coming and it is burning like an oven. It is called the day of judgment. The day of judgment. And John tells us that on this day, there's going to be two realities. Confidence or fear. Confidence or fear. Listen to how Jesus says it. It's going to be based on what you did with the gospel. That gospel that you heard announced. Just a moment ago, what did you do with it? That's going to determine the fear or the confidence. John chapter 3 verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. Two options and only two on judgment day. Safe through faith in Jesus Christ. Confident because of his righteousness, not my own. Or fear of punishment. Fear of punishment. The Bible teaches that the wicked will receive the just penalty for their sin. God is not going to be mean on the final day. He's going to be just. He's going to pay them what they have earned. What, what all of us have earned that Christ took in our place. The Bible says that this is going to be a day of sheer terror. I want you to listen to this in Revelation 6. This is the song of the wicked at the day of judgment. Hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? The Bible says that every human being outside of Jesus will sing that song in Revelation chapter 6. Hide us from him who sits on the throne. The wrath of God is about to be poured out in full strength. This is the day of judgment. If you are outside of Jesus this morning, God has been gracious to you. And He is reminding you, even as we speak, that you will stand before Him. And every person outside of Christ will experience eternal torment as the just penalty for your sin. 
for your sin. Your only hope is in Jesus the Savior. This is the song of the wicked. But the text teaches that God lives in every believer. Every one of us. And He's doing something in us in relation to this final day. And He says that He is literally, that perfected love, it's literally driving out or casting out fear of punishment. God is doing that in every Christian. He is at work. Just like Jesus cast out demons, God, that perfected love, His work inside of us is casting out fear of punishment. And so we still fear God, but we don't fear His punishment. There's no more judicial wrath. There's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because God is in us and He's reminding us, Christ paid it all for you. There's nothing left for you to pay. I poured out my wrath on Jesus. This is a gospel gift for every Christian. And so the song of the righteous on the day of judgment can be found in Isaiah 25 verse 9. They're, they're in sheer terror, hiding from God. But listen to what we sing. Isaiah 25 9. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. Do you believe? Do you believe that? Do you believe that you are so secure in Jesus that when God the righteous judge begins to hand out that judicial sentence, that you're going to sing the glory of Christ. We waited for this day. We are saved. We are safe in Jesus. He paid for my sins. Are you enjoying this gospel gift? God is at work in every Christian. This is your birthright in Christ. This confidence before God on the day of judgment. And so I want us to wake up more and more to that. Okay? I don't mean just factually, do you believe it on a piece of paper that you are safe in the final day? I mean, when you wake up tomorrow, are you joyful in Christ because God has saved you? Wrath has been swallowed. He has overcome death for me. This is the confidence that we have towards Him. Holy boldness before the living God. And you know what it does when we walk in that? As believers, when we walk in this unshakable confidence, Jesus Christ is glorified. His sacrifice is shown to be sufficient, more than enough. Because of what Jesus did for me, there's no chance that I will ever be punished. Jesus looks glorious when a man or a woman walk around in this world with that kind of confidence displayed in Christ. This is the effect of God at work in us. The second effect of God's love being perfected in us is that it cast out horizontal hate. You see this in verse 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is his commandment that we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So we've seen this language a lot in this letter. I won't labor it uh, as we close. 
But the point is this. He holds out an impossibility to us. It is impossible to say that we have love for God if it does not work itself out in our life. Love towards brothers. Love towards other Christians. It is a contradiction so severe that God's word rises up and says liar. That's how false it is. It makes us liars before God. That's false conversion. I can love God, be fine with God, and I don't have to have any relationship with any other Christians. No love for the body of Christ. Not bearing anybody's burdens. False conversion. And what does that mean? That means that true conversion is the exact opposite of that. Okay? True conversion is the exact opposite. It's God powerfully at work within us to do exactly what they didn't have. He's producing those deeds, those acts of love towards the brothers. Towards the brothers. This is a fruit of the gospel. Back in verse 19, it says, We love because He first loved us. That's a beautiful verse. That's coming out of us because he did something to us. And in fact, if you flip that verse around, it becomes a false gospel. We love because he first loved us. And so I want to leave you with this thought. Every Christian, every member of Grace Community Church, God who is love is powerfully at work in us. And what that means, just getting really specific as we close... He has given every single Christian, every single one of us in Christ, He has given you a disposition to love and serve your brothers and sisters. It is a gospel birthright. It is a fruit of the new birth. It really is true for us who are in Jesus. We have access to that. It's a gracious gift from God. And so just to put some words on this from Scripture, the ESV version of Philippians chapter 2, it says it exactly how I want you to hear it. ESV, Philippians 2, verse 4 and 5. Let this encourage you. It says, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And then he says... Have this mind among yourselves. And then the ESV says this, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Do you know that about the gospel? That you have access in Christ Jesus to that disposition. That disposition that drove Jesus to the cross and to serve his body. That same Christ lives in us. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is powerfully at work in your life committed to producing that? And if you do, I want us to turn as a local church to God. And I want to ask God, God, do what you intend to do in us. God calls it to increase. God calls it to abound more and more. All across this church, the fruits of the new birth, the fruits of the gospel. What it calls love in Galatians chapter 5. The fruits of the Holy Spirit. Let them flow all across this body. So I'll close with this prayer. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 12. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. As we do for you. 
so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Let's pray. Father, we come, Lord, and as a local church, God, we just, we ask God for your help, Lord. We ask, we ask for you to stand by, Lord, what you reveal to us, God. God, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for reminding us of your finished work. Thank you for reminding us of, of glorious things that are happening within us that, that we don't even think about many times, God. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would accomplish your work in this church, Lord. That you would reign over us, God. That this world could look in among us, Lord, and they could know that we are your disciples. That we belong to you because of our love for one another. God, I pray in light of... Even this morning, God, uh, of us coming around a brother and sister, Lord, help us to do that more and more and more. Help us to abound in our love for one another. Help us to bear one another's burdens, to rejoice when one another rejoices, and to weep when one another weeps. Lord Jesus, do this in our midst, God. We ask this in your name.